A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's The Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host, and in today's episode where we're only going and talking about the scourge of God himself, Attila the Hun, supreme leader of the Huns in the West in the mid-5th century AD, who led some bloody clashes against the Roman Empire, or should I say Roman empires, both in the East and in the West. The name Attila the Hun is arguably one of the most well-known and one of the most infamous from ancient history today, so what do we actually know about this figure and his life? Well, you're in for a treat, because we haven't just got one episode dedicated to Attila, we've got two. We're going through his whole story, and we're dividing it into two brilliant episodes with none other than Professor Hyun Jin Kim from the University of Melbourne. Hyun Jin, he's been on the podcast before, he was on a few years ago to talk all about the rise of the Huns. He's written all about the Huns, he knows all things Attila, and it was a joy just to listen to him talk in detail about these various stages of Attila's life. I really do hope you enjoy, and without further ado, here's part one of our mega episode on Attila. Hyunjin, it is wonderful to have you back on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. You're more than welcome, and you're dialing in from Melbourne, so the other end of the world where I am in London. But once again, really appreciate it. And to talk about a topic like this, Attila. Now, I know there is so much more to Hunnic history than just this one figure. But it's fair to say that he has come down to us today as the big and the quite terrifying name when someone mentions the Huns. Yes, I mean, he's the proverbial scourge of God, right? Uh, and everybody thinks that uh, Attila was the sort of uh, Genghis Khan or Alexander the Great-like figure. And uh, he's responsible for creating the Hunnic Empire, and uh, he's also responsible for its downfall. Probably the second part of it is somewhat correct, uh, but <laughs> the first part of, of him creating the Hunnic Empire, that's definitely wrong, of course. There is a long history behind him. Well, let's explore that now, Hyunjin, as we go into the background. So the early 5th century AD, before Attila is ruling the Huns, what does the Hunnic Empire look like? Is it already pretty massive? Oh, yes, absolutely. So before Attila becomes the king of the Huns, uh, the, the Hunnic Empire already stretches from the Rhine in the west to the Volga River, or even beyond in the east, during the reign of Attila, Priscus reports that uh, the Huns affected the conquest of the island and the ocean. Right? So that uh, presumably is Scandinavia. So before the reign of Attila, the Huns had already conquered everything up to the Baltic Sea. 
to the south, of course, they had expanded as far as the Danube. So this is an empire that is at this point already larger than the Roman Empire. This is before Attila becomes king of the Huns. And do we know much about where the heartlands of the Huns almost were and where they spread out from to reach these great extents even before Attila takes the throne? Yes, so the original Urheimat, who were the original home of the Huns, or the northern Huns, I suppose, there were many different types of Huns in Central Asia, but uh, we think that it is the northern Huns who emerged into Europe in roughly around about uh, 370 AD. And so their power base was originally what is now Kazakhstan. But of course, until the first two decades of the, the 5th century, it was primarily the region that we now identify as uh, eastern Ukraine. That is the, the center of the, the Hunnic state. But of course, uh, Ashila is the person who moves that power base from that eastern core uh, to what is now Hungary. So he basically shifts the locus of power in the Hunnic state to central Europe. And you also mentioned something really interesting there, Hyunjin, and I think it's important to highlight now, when we're talking about the Huns and the Huns of Attila, are we talking about all of the Huns, or were there various different groups of Huns situated in different parts of the world at that time? Attila's Huns, right? The, the famous Huns that we all know about. So these are, of course, the European Huns. I've just described, of course, the size of that empire. But of course, there were the so-called White Huns. So these are the cousins, I suppose, of the European Huns. They controlled what is now Central Asia, so Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, that area, and also northwestern India. This group, by the time of Ashila, was affecting the conquest of the, the Persian Sasanian Empire. So shortly after Ashila's time, the Huns actually do end up conquering the whole of Persia. And so the Persian Sasanian king becomes merely the puppet, really, of this Huan uh, Empire. So there's another Hunnic Empire uh, that is directly to the southeast, I suppose, of uh, the European Huns. And there is also a group of Huns called the, uh, the Yueban or Chuban Huns in eastern Central Asia. And uh, this group is, I suppose, the Blue Huns or the Eastern Huns. And uh, they control the original territory of the Huns in Central Asia. But uh, shortly after the death of Attila, this group is conquered by another steppe empire, that of the Ruron, or in some cases they're identified with the later more famous Avars, although that connection is not quite certain. But anyway, uh, that group uh, conquers the Eastern Huns. And so what, by the time that Ashla dies, there is a huge migration of uh, these fugitive peoples from Central Asia who are fleeing the so-called Avars and uh, flooding into Eastern Hunnic territory. And that is an interesting dynamic, which... Uh, often is missed by historians. Why do the Huns fail to recover their Western territories after Ashida's death? And that is because of this uh, disturbance that they're encountering in the East. So Priscus tells us that Ernak, uh, the eventual successor of Ashida in the eastern half of the Hunnic Empire, he quarrels with his brother Dengijik, who is another son of Ashida, uh, because Dengijik wants to uh, invade the Eastern Roman Empire. And Urak tells him that uh, I'm busy fighting wars in the, way, in the East, right? So we don't have the manpower to pull, uh, you know, launch this campaign. And so the two brothers basically split. And Dengizhuk uh, goes on a foolhardy uh, invasion of uh, the Eastern Roman Empire with largely Gothic troops, uh, which of course ends in failure. 
But that is, of course, much, much later. That is, of course, much, much later. And we'll definitely get to the succession of Attila a bit later. And the whole story of the White Huns, that other empire, is certainly worthy of a topic in its own right, of a podcast in its own right. And no doubt we will do one in the future. But let's therefore go back to the background of Attila's Huns, this European Hunnic Empire that stretched all the way from the Volga to the Rhine. What politically does this empire look like? You know, the political structure. Do we know much about the hierarchy, the organisation of this Hunnic Empire pre-Attila? Well, pre-Attila, only snippets. It's Priscus who visited the Hunnic court during the reign of Attila who provides us with the best account of how this state was organised. Uh, but prior to Hesheda, there are other diplomats, like Olympiodorus, for example, who tells us that uh, the Huns had a supreme king, right, uh, the highest king. And uh, this highest king or emperor is supported in his duties by lesser kings, uh, kings that uh, the Romans refer to as regulars. So, for example, Uldin, who uh, some historians mistake as the first king of the Huns known to history, He's not really the king. He's just a, a sub-king, a regulus. And uh, so he's a vassal of some other king, who we don't know by name. And then uh, shortly after the time of Wulden, Karaton becomes the supreme king of the European Huns. And uh, there is a sub-king by the name of Donatius who serves under him. So this is a very hierarchical structure. And uh, by the time of Asada, we know, how, you know very clearly how the system is organized. It is a replica of the, the old Hunnic imperial system that used to exist in what is now Mongolia and Turkestan, whereby there is an emperor, or Dargwa, uh, at the top, and the supreme king is then supported by two preeminent kings, the king of the east, or the king of the right, depending on which uh, orientation that you're adopting, obviously, uh, and then, of course, the king of the west. So there are two preeminent kings in a dual structure. And then uh, there are two other kings who are inferior, inferior to these two preeminent kings, but who rank just below, forming a college of four top-ranking kings. So in other words, there are five kings in total at the very top. And then there is a college of six kings below them. And Ulden, of course, as his name implies, so Uld in his name is a corruption of the, the Turkic alt, which means six. So he's one of the six kings. So 10 sort of preeminent kings at the top, of course, with the emperor at the very top, and then below those kings, of course, uh, a series of ranks, uh, which uh, Priscus refers to as the logades, the picked men. Right? These are aristocratic princes or courtiers who control the various provinces of the empire. And uh, these picked men or court officials are also divided into eastern princes and western princes in a dual system. And so in the banquet that Priscus is invited to at Attila's court, uh, these princes all take their uh, sort of hierarchical positions. And uh, so Ashela, of course, being the supreme king, is seated in the most prominent place, and to his right and left sit the next highest-ranking kings on the same couch. So his successor, the king of the east, Elok, his eldest son, is seated to his right, uh, signifying that he is the king of the east. And then Attila's surviving uncle, Oyabarzius, who is the king of the west, is seated to his left, so he's the next highest-ranking king. Uh, so you've got the emperor in the center, the kings of the, uh, the, the east and west flanking him, and then all the other kings line up in descending order with the eastern princes outranking the western princes. It must have been such a mad logistical task to get all of those kings 
controlling such a vast territory into that one place for that one great feast, given you know that great size of the Hunnic Empire at that time. You mentioned Priscus there. When learning, when exploring the story of Attila, the sources that we have available for this figure, is it almost completely literature written by the Romans? Yes, unfortunately. So Attila, well, there are legends later concerning Attila, which survive in Norse tradition and also in Germanic tradition, where, especially in the Germanic tradition, where he is depicted as a very noble figure. Even in Roman sources, in Priscus, he is treated as a very noble figure, a dangerous you know, enemy, obviously, but uh, he is presented as a very just monarch who is uh, not tempted by any kind of sort of decadent luxuries and that sort of thing. So everybody at the banquet, they feast on dishes made of gold and silver. Right, and fineries, but uh, Ashula is having none of it, right? So none of these delicacies, he just eats meat and it's served on wooden plates, right? So he, he's very frugal, in other words, and he takes pride in his frugality and uh, he doesn't like uh, sort of uh, frivolous entertainment either. So this court clown uh, that uh, uh, his brother Blader used to favor, a guy called Zircon, who mixes three languages together and uh, the, the cosmopolitan sort of aristocrats who are Assemble there, they understand all of these three languages. So, Hunnic, which is a form of Turkic, then Gothic, and then Latin. So, all the three languages are actually understood by the aristocrats assembled in Attila's court. And uh, so, Zircon mixes the three languages together in this uh, comical sort of speech, and uh, everybody bursts out laughing. And Priscus notices that the only person who is not amused is Attila, right? So, he is presented as a very, very serious figure. But then, uh, so contemporary sources, Malaysia, Germanic tradition presents him in a reasonably favorable light. But of course, uh, the person who is most responsible for turning him into this, you know, terrible sort of uh, a scourge of God, you know, uh, figure is, of course, Jordanes, who is a Gothic historian who is writing a hundred years later in the Eastern Roman Empire, who basically uh, rewrites everything. In Jordanes's history, everybody looks bad except his Goths. <laughs> It's a, it's a major rewrite of the history of the period from a Gothic perspective. And he does a lot of strange things uh, in order to basically look, make his Goths look invincible. And uh, so they always win despite uh, situations which uh, clearly suggest otherwise, right? So Gothic kings keep uh, getting killed, uh, but so they win the battle regardless, <laughs> that sort of thing. But anyway, um, there we find Ashula, the cruel Ashula, the dangerous uh, barbarian, that kind of image. Although it's not entirely negative either, even there, but uh, still Jordanes is the person who creates that image of Attila. And really, because this actually seems very important for any talk about Attila, not just the Romans and the Huns, but also these other people who are really closely entwined with his story and what he does, which are the Goths. I mean, who are the Goths at this time, Hyunjin? The Goths uh, are originally a Germanic people who seem to have migrated from somewhere along the, uh, from the Baltic coastal regions to what is now Ukraine and Romania. Now, the Goths were not a homogenous group, so various sources are confused about their origins. Yes, we do know that the main language that uh, most of their people spoke was a Germanic language. But if you look at the names of the Gothic leaders, their aristocratic elites. Some of them do have Germanic names, but many others have Iranian Sarmatian names. So they had an elite which uh, mingled uh, Germanic language speakers and Iranian language speakers. 
This was before the Honey Conquest, by the way. And of course, uh, there was also a large Dakian and uh, Getic population in their confederacy as well. So this was a very hybrid entity, even before the Honey Conquest. The Eastern Goths, uh, who are called the Groitungs, the Groitungi, are uh, basically steppe peoples. <laughs> they are very similar to the Alans and the Huns in many ways. They are ruled by very powerful kings. Their aristocracy is probably of non-Germanic Sarmatian origin. Then there is the, the Western Goths, the Tervingi Goths, uh, who are more similar to the Western Germanic confederacies. And both these groups, of course, are conquered uh, by the Huns. The, the, the Groisfungs almost entirely by the Huns. Uh, many of the Tervingi managed to escape into Roman territory. And once there, the Tervingi are uh, mixed with the, the fugitive Alans. So the Alans, another group that's been conquered by the Huns, some of them, of course, uh, are subjugated by the Huns. Many others flee into Roman territory and... Uh, the Alans mingle with the Goths, and uh, the Goths also, also pick up recruits in the Balkans, and they become this very, very hybrid entity. Uh, they, they ravage uh, the Balkan provinces of the Roman Empire, and then, of course, famously sack Rome under their king Alaric. And then, after Alaric dies, uh, his brother-in-law, I believe, Atalf, then leads an army consisting of Goths and many other peoples into Gaul. Right, so... Who are the Goths? Uh, there are some Goths who are living under the Huns, who are ruled by Hunnic princes. Right? So Valamur, for example, who is the king of the, the Goths, he is a Hun. Right? So he's a Hun who's been given control of the Goths. And uh, Valamur has two brothers, Thudamur and Vidimur. Even the fact that Valamur is a Hunnic prince, those two must also be Huns too, right? because they're, they're his brothers. And of course, uh, Valamur has a nephew called Theodoric, it's a little bit unclear as to whether Theodoric is actually his nephew or his uh, bastard son, but most people think he's the nephew. And so Theodoric then, of course, later becomes uh, the, the famous uh, king of the Ostrogoths uh, who rule Italy. And so the Goths, uh, like the Huns, are a very, very complex grouping. A very, very complex grouping indeed. And I think it was important to explain who they were as we delve into Attila's story. Hello, host of Dan Snow's History at Podcast here. History isn't just dates and facts. It's about the incredible stories that shape our world. Three times a week on my podcast, my expert guests and I bring you extraordinary stories of heroism, discovery, mystery, and power. Expect tales of lost tombs, daring escapes, power-hungry rulers, and those determined to bring them all down. If you're a history lover or just looking for a good tale, you want to check out Dan Snow's History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. 
Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's focus in on Attila. We've talked about him a bit at that feast a bit earlier, but do we know much about his rise to the kingship? Does he go from a humble background to the kingship? I mean, what do we know about that earlier stage in Attila's life? Yes, yeah, so Attila, well, we know very little about as the prior to him becoming king, but we do know that so he's the son of Munzuk, the elder brother of King Ruga, or King Roga of the Huns, who was the supreme king of the Huns prior to uh, the rise of uh, his nephews, Blazer and Attila, to the Hunnic throne. Uh, so Munzuk is the elder brother of uh, Ruga, but uh, he seems to have died early after uh, you know, siring his two sons, uh, Blazer and Attila. So Attila is blue blood, right? He's born in the purple, as it were. And uh, if his father had uh, lived long, of course, uh, you know, his father would pr- probably have been uh, king of the Huns, the high king of the Huns. But of course, that does not happen because he he was out of the picture. And so Munzuk's uh, younger brother, Ruga, the uncle of Attila and Blader, become the king. There is another uncle, Oktar, who is the king of the West, right? So the imperial viceroy, as it were, uh, is Oktar. But uh, Oktar seems to have suffered from some kind of an ambush when he was campaigning in Germany. And uh, there was a group of, uh, well, a confederation of peoples called the Burgundians who uh, were situated further east but were driven uh, towards the Rhine by the the Huns. And uh, so uh, Oktar was campaigning in that area, and uh, nobody really knows what happened. But so there is a very sort of mythologized version of <laughs> what happened. And uh, it's, it appears that uh, either Oktar was assassinated or something happened, right? And some event which caused the Huns a bit of embarrassment. So Oktar dies, and of course, uh, the Burgundians pay for this very dearly later. So the Huns, of course, annihilate the Burgundians. This is celebrated in the, the later medieval uh, German epic, the Nibelungenlied, the, which features uh, Siegfried. <laughs> and uh, so King Etzel of the, the Huns, who is Attila, annihilates the, the Burgundians and their king uh, and kills their king Gundar and, and what have you. Now, because that is a very, very late, you know, sort of epic, medieval epic, uh, we can't be sure whether Attila led this campaign against the Burgundians and uh, that whether he was the, per- the Hunnic uh, prince who destroyed the Burgundians or not. But uh, his name is associated with the annihilation of the Burgundians in later tradition. And the only other thing that we know about Attila before he becomes king is that uh, he was somehow associated with the Gepids. This is another Germanic people who uh, were moved by the Huns to uh, eastern Hungary. And uh, Attila is called a Gepid Hun. So in other words, he's obviously a Hunnic prince, but he rules the Germanic confederacy of the, the Gepids before his ascension uh, to the uh, imperial throne. So that's the only thing that we know about him, really, is uh, he was associated with the Gepids. So when Attila becomes the supreme king, the Gepids suddenly become very important. 
Uh, and so Alderic, who is the, the sub-king of the Gepids, becomes basically, well, according to Jordanes anyway, if we trust him, he becomes the sort of the right-hand man of Asphila, according to Jordanes. But Ardaric isn't mentioned at all by Priscus. <laughs> so that's another thing. So according to Jordanes, Ardaric is a very important figure, but not according to Priscus. He, he's not even mentioned. So it depends. So anyway, the Gepids do appear to be relatively important because of Asphila's early associations with So Attila rises to the throne, and I've got in my notes 434 AD. Correct me if I'm wrong there, Hyunjin. Uh, actually, a bit later. So it's... Ah, uh, right. um, okay. We're a bit unsure as to when Ruger died. Most people think 434, perhaps 435. The dates are a little bit uncertain. But anyway, by the middle of uh, the 430s, Blader is the king. Right. right. So Blader, of course, the elder brother of Attila. Now, that succession was uh, not uncontested. So there are a bunch of Hunnic princes who end up fleeing from Blader uh, to Constantinople. So Blader and Ashila demand that uh, these uh, fugitive princes be handed back to them. So there was some kind of a, a family squabble amongst the relatives of Ruga to determine who was going to be the next king. But uh, Blader is the eventual victor, and he is the emperor or the high king. Now, Ashila gradually rises, it appears, in the ranks. And uh, by the time that uh, the Huns wage uh, their first big war against the Romans in 441, when uh, the Huns negotiate with the Romans, Blader and Asula are involved in the negotiations. So Asula is almost treated like Blader's equal. And so the Roman ambassadors refer to them as the kings of the Huns. Although earlier, the successor of Ruga was clearly Blader. So Asula's stars are rising. And uh, shortly thereafter, uh, Blader is eliminated <laughs> in a coup. Uh, by Asila. And uh, Asila is uh, firmly king of the Huns uh, by the middle of the, the 440s. So by 445, thereabouts, Asila is supreme king or emperor of the Huns. So that is absolutely brutal by Attila though, isn't it? So Blader is his older brother and yet he gets rid of him in his quest ultimately for the top position in the Hunnic Empire. He's not going to sit for anything else. He's wanted mm. that top place. Yeah, so in other words, this is the first usurpation that we know of in the, the Hunnic system. There were squabbles uh, over the throne when the Supreme King dies. Of course, there is the usual sort of uh, tit-for-tat at the Council of Princes. And, uh, and of course, uh, there is some political maneuvering there. But rarely did this you know, lead to some kind of civil conflict. But uh, Ashula obviously precipitated his rise to the throne by unjust means. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And so... When Blader is removed, many of the, the princes in the East, they rebel. Right? So the, the most powerful Hunnic fief in the East, uh, the Akhatsiri Huns in Ukraine, starts to plan a revolt against Ashila. And so Ashila has to send an army to squash that revolt later. He's fortunate because Kuridakus, who is a very high-ranking sub-king amongst the Akhatsiri, conspires with Ashila against his allies. <laughs> so the rebellion is uh, squashed early. And uh, Elak, of course, the, the eldest son of Asura, becomes the, the new king of the Akkad Siri and is uh, made the, the crown prince, right? the king of the East. So Attila has dealt with these internal issues once he's usurped Blader and removed his elder brother. Now he has consolidated his sole rule at the top. What does he decide to do next? Does he start looking towards the Roman Empire? Yes. So prior to um, the rise of Asula, 
the Huns, of course, had numerous collisions with the Eastern Roman Empire in particular. Right? So Ruger was in the process of invading the Eastern Roman Empire when he suddenly died. And so Theodosius uh, celebrated a triumph over the Huns, despite the fact that uh, he was defeated on the field. And, just, and Theodosius, he's the emperor of the Eastern Roman Empire, I'm presuming, at that time. Yes, Theodosius II, right? So, uh, so Ruger dies, and then, of course, uh, Blazer and Asila launch a war against the Romans in 441, which ends in a Hunnic victory. And the Roman emperor agrees to pay tribute, an increased tribute to the Huns. And then, of course, right after he ascends the throne, Asila needs to prove himself. And so he launches an even greater war against the Eastern Romans in 447. He basically sacks every Roman fortification in the Balkans and uh, lays waste uh, virtually the entirety of the Nubian provinces of the Eastern Romans. Uh, he destroys three uh, Eastern Roman armies. It's a campaign of annihilation, basically. And, uh, and so the Eastern Romans then have to uh, pay an enormous tribute. Uh, there is a token tribute that is uh, paid to the Hunnic king himself, but then Ashla demands that all the prisoners he's captured from the Romans in this war hundreds and thousands of people, all have to be ransomed by Constantinople. So, of course, this is an enormous amount of money that he's requesting. And uh, the Eastern Romans have no choice but to oblige. So, earlier, when the Huns waged war against the Romans, they would capture people and uh, sort of drag them back to Hunnic territory and settle them in, in territory that they controlled. But uh, they would not engage in this sort of extortion. <laughs> but uh, Attila engages in something which was unheard of, he, holds an entire population to ransom. And uh, why is he doing that? Presumably because he needs to reward a lot of the people who've helped him <laughs> usurp the throne. So he's un insecure in his position. So he needs to show uh, extraordinary largesse in order to keep his uh, vassals happy. And uh, so that's what he does. So he just uh, completely humiliates the Eastern Romans. And uh, by making them pay, he... Uh, not only stabilizes his position amongst the various uh, Hunnic military leaders, but also financially rewards them. It's fascinating how you see again and again in so many different ancient societies, this need by sometimes by a new king, particularly if they're from a new dynasty or they've had a, a rocky way to the throne, that they immediately go on a big military campaign to kind of secure their control. And this one as you've mentioned, it sounded like it was absolutely devastating for the Eastern Roman Empire in the Balkans. You mentioned tributes there, and I think I remember this from our last chat, but with the whole Hunnic ideology and uh, the mission of the Huns, their foreign policy, how important was gaining of tributes from defeated enemies? And was that more important than, let's say, actually gaining physical land and territory? Absolutely. The Hunnic Empire is a traditional inter-Asian tributary empire. And uh, people often sort of are perplexed uh, when they look at the, the sums that are requested by the Hunnic kings from uh, the Romans as tribute. It is not that much, right? It, it is a hefty sum, but uh, not the end of the world if the Romans pay up, right? Uh, so what, what is the point of this gold? And uh, some people have suggested that uh, this was the gold that was needed to Feed, feed the, the Hunnic sort of aristocracy, that would have barely made a dent anywhere, right? So, so in other words, that tribute is symbolic. What uh, the Huns uh, were after was not food to feed their sort of people. They had plenty of food. What they were after was tokens of submission uh, because the, the Hunnic kings saw themselves as universal rulers. 
so nobody was their equal. And the Roman emperors were regarded as vassal kings, or would-be vassal kings, who needed to be subdued. But the Huns are not really interested in taking territory away from the Romans, because their empire is large enough already. So controlling yet more territory was, administratively speaking, quite a burden. And so Aswell actually annexes a swath of territory south of the Danube after 447. And then a couple of years later, in subsequent negotiations with the Eastern Romans, he actually tells the Roman ambassadors that he's willing to give the territory back. He doesn't uh, care about this land south of the Danube. And he says, you can take it back if you like. I mean, he doesn't end up giving it back to the Romans. But the very fact that uh, he negotiates for the return of this land uh, to the Eastern Romans is telling. It wasn't his intention to conquer the Eastern Roman uh, Empire outright. So he wanted to subdue the Romans and reduce them to tributary status. And uh, in the funerary dirge that is sang by the Huns after the death of Asula, the Huns praise the deeds of Asula. And in that dirge, they tell us something very interesting. They say that uh, Asula was undefeated and unvanquished during his lifetime. That's one thing that they tell us. And the, secondly, they say that uh, he subjected both halves of the Roman Empire to tributary stations, uh, to the payment of tribute. So in other words, he made the Romans subjects of the Huns. So that was the impression, or that was the belief of the Huns, that uh, the Roman emperors were um, the subjects of the Hunnic king. And Priscus tells us that uh, Asula regarded the Roman emperors to be the equal of his generals. So he didn't think much of them. Well, you've given a hint there of the other Roman Empire. So we'll go to the Roman Empire in the West in a moment. And Attila's interactions with them, arguably perhaps the most infamous or famous part of Attila's conquests. But before that, if you were, let's say, a diplomat or an ambassador from the Eastern Roman Empire, someone like Priscus, and you were going to the court of Attila back in his kingdom, let's say away from the feast that we've mentioned earlier, I mean, what did the court of Attila look like? What was expected of a Hunnic ruler and where his seat of power was almost? Yeah, so we have no way of knowing what the, the Hunnic sort of capital in the East looked like. We have no descriptions of it. But so we do have a description of uh, Attila's uh, capital in what is now Hungary. This was a uh, not very impressive town <laughs> from Priscus's perspective, right? So there were many big buildings, obviously, but so, and there were uh, he noticed that there were bathhouses and uh, there were palaces there. So Asula obviously had the biggest palace in this capital, and then Onegesius, who was sort of Asula's right hand man or grand vizier, had the second largest palace. So contrary to uh, popular perception, which uh, regards the Huns to be nomads and pastoralists, by this time. They had sedentary settlements. So Priscus notices that there are many, many settlements, and uh, these uh, rural settlements are controlled by Hunnic uh, thiefholders. So Beric, for example, who is a Hunnic nobleman, a high-ranking high Hunnic uh, nobleman, he owns a lot of villages in Scythia. Uh, Blader's uh, ex-wife uh, also has a village that uh, is uh, has been allocated to her as fief, and so it's a very for want of a better term, a quasi-feudal society in which territory and uh, peoples and uh, settlements are distributed to aristocratic and uh, royal fiefholders. Now, that's what Priscus describes. And I guess also, if you're focusing on Attila himself, if he's in this palace, would we also expect 
Would he be approachable by people, let's say theoretically, and that he's almost the arbiter in chief? He's the chief lawgiver is the wrong word, but he could almost be a court of appeal like a Roman emperor theoretically could be. And also, if you approached him, would he also have lots of his children about or would he have several wives? What do we know about that kind of part of Attila's life? Basically, Attila as a ruler away from the military and the front line of war. The Romans try to bribe uh, one of the Hunnic princes who uh, visits Constantinople as an envoy. It's a guy called Edeko, who is a Hunnic noble. And he, of course, is the father of the notorious Odoacer, who later dethrones the last Western Roman emperor, Romulus Augustulus. Romulus Augustulus, for his part, is the son of a certain Orestes, who was Attila's secretary. <laughs> it's all in the family. But anyway, um, so Edeko is propositioned by the Eastern Romans, and uh, they try to bribe him into assassinating Attila. And he sort of uh, leads the Romans on, <laughs> pretending that he's going to assassinate the king. And then, of course, uh, as soon as he gets to the Hunnic capital, he tells Attila that this is what happened, and they try to bribe me. And, of course, uh, Asula uh, forgives Edeko for indulging the, the, the Romans and then let the Romans know his, his displeasure. Uh, he doesn't execute the ambassadors, obviously, but uh, he shows his displeasure, but also, uh, you know, displays his clemency, as it were. Right? And, uh, and so Jordanes has this passage where he says that uh, there were 50 or so kings, or kings not befitting that name, who were like a bunch of slaves, right? So they were cowering before Asula and uh, they were, you know, petrified every time that he turned his gaze towards them and that sort of thing. So he's presented as this tyrant who everybody is afraid of. But um, what these passages do allude to is that the Hun King was, uh, of course, uh, responsible for the dispensation of justice. He was the equivalent of the Supreme Court, I suppose. And uh, there was also a bureaucracy surrounding Asada. So there were a bunch of scribes who were writing down everything, present the Roman ambassadors with lists of uh, fugitives who fled and uh, all the sort of uh, treaty sort of uh, stipulations that the Romans have violated, making those sorts of complaints. So the Huns do have a clear idea of what is right and wrong, certainly. But um, given the dearth of the evidence that we have, uh, this is something that uh, we know little about. How did the, the Huns administer justice? A defector from the Romans to the Huns tells the Roman ambassador uh, that uh, living under the Huns is uh, far more preferable than living under a very corrupt Eastern Roman government and says that uh, actually in the Hunnic state, we have justice. But that's about it, right? Uh, so uh, that's the, uh, and of course, the Romans, then they have a rhetorical debate. Whether that conversation ever happened or not, of course, that's another question. But uh, there is an indication that uh, the Romans were afraid of uh, Roman subjects defecting to the Huns, because there was actually quite sizable number of uh, Roman citizens who actually worked for the Huns. Chief among them, of course, uh, Orestes, who, who becomes the father of the, the last Western Roman emperor, and another famous figure, Aetius, who also worked for the Huns, yes, which is something that people often forget. Right? Aetius is uh, remembered as the, the last Roman or the magister militum, the Roman generalissimo, but he was actually a Hunnic subject. And uh, the Hunnic kings Ruga and uh, Bleda regarded him as their vassal, uh, as their governor. <laughs> That's why he is given Hunnic troops uh, for all his endeavors. Right? So this is no, you know, sort of hostage. Or some people have argued that Aetius was hiring Hunnic mercenaries. No, he, he's not hiring mercenaries. He is given armies to command by the Hunnic kings. One of the armies that he's given numbers sixty thousand. 
right? So that's literally the entire Hunnic army in the West uh, that he's given command of. So Aetius was a very high-ranking official in the Hunnic hierarchy. Uh, that's for certain. And uh, this is a very interesting person because he plays both sides. To the Huns, he is definitely a royal subject of the Hunnic king. Uh, but uh, to the Romans, he is the magister militum. He's the Roman generalism. <laughs> but he's basically independent of both in practice, right? He's a warlord out for his own uh, you know, benefit, so to speak. Aetius is such a fascinating figure. We're going to get to him very soon. I mean, just keeping on Attila's court one bit longer, do we know much about his wives or his children at the court? Let's say even at this time before he dies and before he's launched this campaign into the West. Yeah, so uh, like all Hunnic kings, uh, uh, was polygamous. We are not sure as to whether he had a principal wife. Blader seems to have had a principal wife. So I suppose we could assume that uh, uh, Asula had a queen, but uh, he had many sort of wives that he favored. And we do know the, the, the names of some of his wives. He had many sons, according to Priscus, but uh, he uh, apparently did not think highly of any of them. <laughs> and so the only son that uh, he supposedly favored was Ernok, his youngest. And Priscus, uh, he's writing with hindsight, right? So he says that uh, Azula was told of prophecy that his race, in other words, his dynasty would fail after his death, but that Ernak, uh, this prodigy, uh, would uh, restore everything after he's, uh, he's passed away. So that's why he favors Ernak. And that's exactly what happened, of course. Uh, Ernak was Azula's eventual successor. And so Priscus, who knows this, uh, sort of uh, inserts that narrative into the narrative of his visit to Hashanah's court, but probably fictitious. Regardless, at that time, therefore, if we're getting to those mid-440s AD, before Attila really goes far west and Aetius becomes this great enemy of Attila, at this time in Attila's reign, he's already got this massive tribute from the Eastern Roman Empire. His name is spreading far and wide. Can we almost say that he's almost nearing the zenith of his own rise at this time because of that first incredibly ruthless campaign? And now that power and that which that money brought and that reputation brought, which leads him on to his future conquests. Yeah, so he's at the height of his power. He has just captured 70 fortified cities from the Romans in the Balkans alone. So this was an enormous shock uh, to the Eastern Romans because the, the earlier barbarian invaders, well, from the Roman perspective, that is. Right? So these invaders who had invaded Eastern Roman territory, they did ravage the countryside. But because they lacked uh, sufficient siege equipment, they failed to take any of these fortified cities. But the Huns were different. They were able to capture these fortified settlements at will. They had uh, the, the requisite uh, siege weapons. And so uh, the damage that was inflicted on Roman authority in the Balkans was uh, enormous. So 50 years after this war of 447, the Eastern Romans still do not control much of the territory south of the Danube. And uh, there are barbarian armies marauding all over the Balkans, and the, the imperial cause can do nothing about it. It's only by the time of Justinian in the 6th century, that the Romans start refortifying some of these places in order to stop a Bulgar hot invasion at that time. So the War of 447 was devastating for the Eastern Romans. And of course, uh, Asada then uh, decides to invade the, the Western Roman Empire 
which is a break from what had happened prior to his reign. Now, the, the, the Huns did intervene actively in Western Roman affairs prior to this, but uh, many people have argued that uh, the Huns had good relations with the Western Romans, but very poor relations with the Eastern Romans. Now, that is an inaccurate statement. Uh, yes, uh, the Huns had poor relations with the Eastern Romans and frequently invaded the Eastern Roman Empire, but they also invaded the Western Roman Empire too, prior to Asula. It's just that uh, they had a good relationship with Aetius, not with the Western Romans per se. They had a good relation with Aetius. Why? Not because they thought of him as uh, you know, the Western Roman generalissimo or the, the prince of the Romans, but because they saw him as their vassal. So the only reason why the Western Roman territories remained relatively unscathed prior to Asada's invasion was because uh, the Huns thought this territory was being ruled by their vassal. And uh, so Aetius very cleverly managed to sort of uh, maintain that facade until it broke to pieces. Well, Hyunjin, that will be the end of our first part of this interview all about Attila. It's been fascinating so far, but as you've been hinting at there, with Attila looking west with Aetius, we're building up to the great climax, aren't we, of Attila? There's still much more to come. Indeed. Well, there you go, a cliffhanger to end the first part of our mega episode all about Attila the Hun. With none other than the fantastic Professor Hyun Jin Kim, I really do hope you enjoyed the episode and don't you worry, we are going to be continuing the story of Attila as he turns his gaze west to the likes of Aetius very, very soon. Stay tuned for that. Hyun Jin is going to be back very, very shortly. In the meantime, if you have enjoyed today's episode and you want to help the ancients out as we continue our everlasting mission to share these incredible stories from our distant past with you and with as many people as possible. We know what you can do. You can leave us a lovely rating on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps us as we continue on with that mission. And also to give these brilliant experts such as Hyunjin the spotlights that they deserve for the years of research that they've dedicated to their particular fields. But that's enough from me. And I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.